Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Trinway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trinwaysilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Trinway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trinway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. At Stewart Heritage Farm in New Market, Tennessee, Farm to Fiber and Yarn has been part of their story for 20 years. Home to a small herd of alpacas, Stewart Heritage produces small batch roving, yarn, and finished goods in 100% alpaca and natural blends, in natural tones and brilliant hand-dyed colors. Discover the fine quality, long-lasting comfort, and soft luxury of alpaca to wear and enjoy in your home. Explore and shop alpaca at stuartheritagefarm.com. Peters Valley School of Craft enriches lives through the learning, appreciation, and practice of fine craft. For more than 50 years, accomplished artists and students have come together in community for powerful creativity and joyous lifelong learning in beautiful northwestern New Jersey. We are firmly dedicated to inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. We value and welcome the experienced professional artist, the new learner, the collector, and everyone in between to be touched by the power of craft. Visit petersvalley.org to start your journey today. I'm your host, Long Thread Media co-founder, Anne Merrow. Keisha Cameron and her family are High Hog Farm, a homestead in rural Georgia that they founded in 2009. We know her best for her Gulf Coast native sheep and dye materials, but as you'll hear, the farm is home to a broad range of plants and animals. Keisha, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. So tell me about High Hog Farm. Uh, yeah, we... We are a small family farm, uh, meaning my husband and I are returning generation farmers that we moved from New York down here to Georgia uh, with our three boys and very quickly learned and fell in love with being on the land. We started with a foreclosure fixer-upper and way too many dreams and aspirations after watching HGTV videos of... (laughs) fixer-uppers of this little homestead with our three boys. And then we began homeschooling or really unschooling and raising our kids and and really kind of raising ourselves up and healing ourselves as we built a relationship with the land and really wanted to support this little ecosystem that we Mm -hmm. saw evolving. Um, And somewhere along the line, I fell in love with sheep. Mm Mm-hmm. And fiber and the agrarian arts, we consider ourselves students of Black agrarianism and Black mm-hmm. agrarian arts. So continuing the traditions that, you know, our ancestors knew and perfected and shared within community. So yeah, we're trying to live into that. It's, a, it's sometimes a big task, a bit daunting, but it's been a really rewarding adventure, bit of a journey so far, so... What does it mean to be returning generation? Yeah, so it's kind of this sense if you track a little bit of our history um, as Blacks and African Americans in this country, just being rooted in the South Mm -hmm. and then moving through that great migration into the North 
and being generations removed from the land, moving into cities, moving into spaces where putting food up or growing um, your own, having your own spaces Mm -hmm. to grow and being in connection to the land became something that was a generation or two removed. Mm. And um, now you've got so many people who are migrating back and who are returning to the South and looking to rebuild those connections, reestablish those relationships and rediscover a lot of the traditions that have been lost. Mm -hmm. So I consider myself as a very small speck in this greater constellation of farmers, growers, land stewards, cultivators who are coming back and learning to be, you know, these kind of these seed keepers. So it's a continuation Mm -hmm. of the work that was done before. I certainly feel like a student in this space, but it it has been a little bit of a a call, like a healing journey and a calling back to reconnect. Mm -hmm. And I definitely have the generation before my aunts and uncles who are highly amused and seeing <laughs> this New Yorker. I mean, I'm from the suburbs, but it's like come back down and trying to learn how to do any of this work. It's just, it is comical at times. Um, we definitely have learned to laugh at ourselves when necessary. But yeah, it it is kind of this tribute to just being a through line or being a mm-hmm. connection um, between the past and the future. So it doesn't necessarily mean that, say, your grandparents were farmers. It's more of a being part of a larger tradition and a, and a movement and wanting to kind of build out the connections that you want to see. Yes, yes. I think broadly, I do have the benefit of having family that, and I don't think it's unusual to go back two generations and somebody in your family was farming or working the land or at least living in a way that was sustainable. Mm-hmm. On the land. But yes, that is definitely a a fair summation, I think. Yeah. So that actually makes a lot of sense with what I see in just your delightful Instagram feed, which is, you know, pushing away the idea of being a monoculture, even on your own farm. You're not a sheep farmer or a particular kind of crop farmer. You're sort of a more holistic farmer. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely. And that's a great way of putting it. I appreciate you kind of giving it that language. Um, it's a diversified farm. We also try to be mindful of our capacity. <laughs> now that the boys, my boys are all out of that. Well, I, I have one that's still at home, but he works six days a week and and has a active social life. So it's not like he's really here. We're kind of empty nested. It's a a weird space to be in where Mm -hmm. empty nesting is more of a verb than a noun. But we do put long season crops in the ground. We put up food. I make jellies and jams and breads and tinctures and salves because we use those things. Uh, We try to look first to what's in front of us, what's Mm -hmm. at our hand, what's in our hands, what's at our disposal, and stewarding. To bring forth, like, I, it sounds sometimes a little hokey, but I think, like, I have an herbal garden and I call it my medicinal garden, you oh. know, whether it's through my food or through tea blends or what have you. And we certainly do use, you know, over-the-counter remedies and different mm-hmm. products, which 
is a struggle sometimes because of the amount of processing that goes in. But we first and foremost try to look to what is available. And there's so much abundance around us that that becomes part of our focus and just learning how to take the things that are growing around you and applying them for our health and well-being. And just really sometimes some some things just taste good because heirloom tomatoes are oh. magnificent. <laughs> and isn't it wonderful when you find out that these things that taste amazing are also really good for you? I mean, probably yeah. to people who have been growing heirloom tomatoes for generations or it would not be a surprise that, oh, there's all of these healthy micronutrients in them that'll that'll sustain you. But yeah, yeah. it's not the first thought when you make, you know, a tomato sandwich. Right. right. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's the perk. Speaking of looking to what's around you, I think one of the most astonishing things in the fiber world is natural dye plants, because, you know, why on earth is there blue in these indigo plants? Yeah. Why on earth is there red in these matter roots? And I, I believe that you've started growing dye plants as well. Is that right? Yes, yes. So we are definitely putting different dye plants. And, you know, I wanted a dye garden to start with. And my fascination started with lichens, believe it or not, because they were things that I could forage, you know, after the windfall, right? Mm -hmm. Bordering, you know, the woods along the property. And then the same things you see, the popular, you know, you can die with kitchen scraps, which it's... Uh, you know, it's a little fact and fiction mixed together. Mm -hmm. um, and then realizing, wow, well, wait a minute. We had an industry here and indigo has historic roots to the southeast and it will grow in this region. And not only one type of indigo bearing plant, but, you know, several. So we have now um, tropical indigo uh, we have a little bit of a feral wild indigo is Indigofera tinctoria. We also grow woad and Japanese indigo. And wow. the Japanese indigo does, the persicaria does amazingly well. It's actually starting to show up the sapruticosa and I'm, I'm struggling with <laughs> trying to like prioritize which one gets more of a footprint. But it's been a really amazing connection for me because I think Part of this idea of being returning generation and coming back into relationship where I look at the land as not just a commodity or like it's the idea of perennials in particular, but just having this relationship where you watch a plant or just be in its full, I don't know how to describe this. It's so, I'm, I get really romantic and passionate when I talk about this, but <laughs> so it's really nice having these plants that are so abundant. And one of the things that I'm so fascinated by continually is the fact that plants rarely fill just one niche. It's mm. just, you know, we may have discovered them for a certain purpose, but you've got things like St. John's wort, which will produce a dye, but also is known as medicinal. And it's also a great ground cover and it's mm. a wonderful pollinator. So it's really cool for me to tap into, and that was kind of how my journey started, was just tapping into uses for these plants that I hadn't personally been familiar with. I felt like I was on this discovery, and I, I promise I was <laughs> running to everyone there, anyone who would listen, bombarding with it. Did you know that you can get this color from this plant? And people really, I mean, at a certain point, they're like, but, okay, <laughs> that's exciting, but... 
Yeah. And especially, I think, you know, those sorts of building connections and talking to other folks, because you haven't actually been doing this all that long. You know, that's a lot of knowledge to gain in. Did you say that you started the farm in, was it 2009? So that's 15 years? Yeah. But, wow. Yeah, okay. Wow. Is it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, we, yeah, we started and uh, we moved here in 2009. Mm-hmm. And it was really much more of a homestead journey. The first three, four years were us just figuring out what in the world we were doing and a lot of what not to do. <laughs> it was a little bit of city slickers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that made for some comical moments. And then in 2013 or 2014, we got our farm track number. We decided we were going to, I think at the time, our focus was going to be poultry. Mm-hmm. And we still raised chickens, heritage breed chickens, and primarily for hatching eggs to Mm. preserve their genetic diversity and help, you know, just keep them a viable part of our ecosystem. But Mm -hmm. we were not going to do broilers. And there's so many just layers that that went into that. And I ran into who is now a good friend and mentor. Um, Her name's Jan Southers. She has a farm out near the Athens area called um, Hope Springs Farm. And she was doing a demonstration with Gulf Coast Native Sheep at uh, Ladies Homestead Gathering event that I had attended. And it was such a pivotal moment for me because I fell in love with sheep. I don't know that I would say that I'm a great shepherdess. Hmm. I just know that I have an affinity for sheep and it is a natural fit. And I am continually striving to be the type of shepherdess that I want. So It has been a journey of learning, and I'm grateful for the teachers and mentors who have come alongside and supported me. And then I'm doing my best to kind of reduce and minimize those, I I don't want to call it barriers of entry or accessibility for other people within the community to learn. So I, I definitely learn and give thanks and then pass on what I've learning, what I've learned to others. And I have another mentor named Lenny Sorensen. She's this amazing chef and culinary historian up in uh, Virginia. And she always says, you know, there's people who are going to be 15 minutes ahead of you and you're going to be 15 minutes ahead of somebody else. So you just pass, you're just passing it on. So um, I feel like that's part of my responsibility in the work that we do here on the farm. Um, But it's been a lot that we've learned (laughs) Sometimes the hard way, but it's been a lot that we've we've been able to learn how to do. You know, I feel like that coming into heritage breed sheep and Gulf Coast native sheep, when you did, definitely feels like being just ahead of the curve on something that is really exciting that there's a lot of groundswell around right now, which is rare breed flocks and preserving the, as you said, the genetic diversity of these small pockets so what do you think it was about the Gulf Coast native sheep that spoke to you? I, I know of some shepherds who say, oh, that's my sheep. I mean, I've met that sheep. That's my sheep. Yeah. So, And that's definitely how I feel about the Gulf Coast. And we had Jacobs. We had a couple of Jacobs for a little while, and they were lovely. I will also say that I had the opportunity to learn how to shear and travel with a wonderful oh. friend and teacher, uh, Nicole Taylor, mm-hmm. and her farm and fiber mill up in Cleveland, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And 
got to shear other Jacobs and very quickly realized that I was blessed with the two that I had and did not want any more. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that the Gulf Coasts are a great fit, but they also, they're just suited for our environment. You know, they have a great parasite resistance. Mm. They handle the heat very well. They generally, I mean, they have, there's so much diversity within the breed they do carry color, which was a huge really? thing for me. So, I, yeah, I have a I have a couple little black sheep out in the back pasture who have fleeces that are just divine. I mean, I'm a natural dyer, but you can't get that kind of color. Yeah, with a dye pot. So, they are um, wonderful in terms. Of they have healthy hooves. Uh, they're dual purpose. They were the right size. So there were so many boxes that they ticked. For me, and I do have, we have a small spinner's flock. It's about, I think our max was 19. We just took some to the processor. So, mm -hmm. you know, we do put some in, in the freezer for us, but it's once a year. And I make sure that nothing is wasted because part of the breeding and keeping them as part of our of our history and keeping them alive and thriving is to make, allowing them to reproduce and mm -hmm. and being very judicious in that. So I know that's a little bit of a hard selling point for some people, but I think it's important to recognize that if you are going to care for an animal, you have to provide for its full mm -hmm. life cycle and every need that it has and being really discriminate with how you go about that. So... Right. I had no idea that Gulf Coast native sheep carried color. Did it? Is it just something that appeared or did you breed for it? No, no, no. So I'm about to fall down my livestock conservancy. We're, um, we're right there with you. <laughs> yeah, they have always had, so they were a land race breed and they moved about and intermingled and um, developed all these different characteristics when they had gone, um, I'm going to use air quotes, you know, feral, so to speak. And with that, that means that they were never originally like in an essence of pure, just being bred for just white fleeces. So it is a recessive gene. Mm -hmm. They can carry it. And every now and then it'll pop up, but it's become more popular because of the small holders. Um, you, you know, the wool industry, which I I don't have a full grasp on all of the dynamics that go on within the industry, but I know that a lot of uh, major producers are really struggling with like the wool pools and the bigger commodity, you know, these, mm -hmm. these things where you only can have white. You can't have any color because it can ruin the batch for all the other producers that have contributed in the final product. But within the hand spinner community, there is such a desire for that color. So I think people began to lean into allowing that those traits to show up and not calling them out, which makes me delighted. I have an English blue and I don't necessarily, please don't ask me for the Punnett Square <laughs> any of the genetic breakdown. Right. But I know that they are born where they look black. And then as they get older and they age, it turns into these beautiful shades of gray and brown. I mean, I have a sheep who is my first one of my foundation flock and he's a weather and his name is Smalls. And he has the most beautiful fleece I think I've ever, ever seen. And he's that he's got that English blue. Mm. 
it is divine and it makes it really hard because anytime I send it to the mill for processing or I'm hand processing or someone's like, ooh, can I have some? It's like you, I almost have to have you fry it from my hand <laughs> so that I want to let go. Yeah. It's just, it's delightful to spin and it's just gorgeous. So so it seems like it sort of started with the sheep and then moved toward the fiber for you. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And if if I hate to even say this, but if I had to choose, the sheep would still win. There's something about their eyes and their breath and their quirks that just I'm smitten. So I consider myself a shepherd first and then an agrarian artist after that and just learning. And there's a there's a stopping point there, too, because at a certain People are always like, well, what are you going to make after I've spun the yarn? And I'm like, the yarn. I've yeah. made the yarn. We're, <laughs> we're good now. Like, I, I I am learning to weave just as a hobby. I think it's nice to know how to do a thing, but I don't see myself ever becoming a, formally becoming a weaver. And it's kind of the similar to the way that I knit. And I knit. I'm not a happy knitter. I knit under duress and I'm grumpy because it's just so much counting and concentration. Whereas uh-huh. spinning, I can kind of let my mind wander and relax and it becomes rhythmic. And so, yeah, there, it's definitely sheep, then fiber arts. And then even within that, there's tears. Right. <laughs> Do. Where, where does dying fit in there for you? Is that in that hierarchy? Oh, well, Do you like that? Definitely towards the top. Yeah, towards the top. I love. So... Gosh, and that's interesting because I don't think I've ever really thought about which I I love growing and producing dye crops. We are a small scale farm, so there's a capacity limit to how much I can really produce or the demands you put on the on the land for the yields. But I like the I do like the artisanal craft. Indigo is just so wondrous and amazing that it is it's a world unto itself. I have had the opportunity of spending some coaching time with Britt Bowles, who is out in Seattle, and Donna Hardy, who's here in Athens. And I have these wonderful indigo mentors and teachers. And that's I, I want to just really uplift them because they've poured a lot of knowledge into me. But still, it's just like I feel like I've scratched the surface. And it's only been about three or four years of really kind of producing and getting to know indigo. And then the other dye crops are just like, you could, I feel like I could say the same for matter. You know, Mm -hmm. there's just so much richness there. So there's that fascination. But then if time permitted, like if I just had all the abundance of time in the world, which Mm -hmm. (laughs) is is the thing that's in shortest supply, I do think I would spend more time in the dye studio. Like just really making and creating, right? Um, so that's a that that one's a good question because it's a toss up between producing and making when it comes to dyes. It's very interesting because you know you talk about if you had an abundance of time, you have an abundance of all sorts of crops and animals and different things that all need your time and attention. So it's kind of as you get more of one, you unfortunately have less of the other. Oh my goodness, yes. So it started with my horse, Hercules. I got um, riding lessons. Mm -hmm. I turned 30 and I said, I'm going to, I had already had all three boys by the time I was 30. My husband and I were still, were here on the farm. And I said, I'm going to do something just for myself. And we started with Hercules and lessons. And I used to go out on trail rides. And it's been at least three years since I've been in a saddle. And he's 
so content to just be fed and groomed <laughs> yes. and left alone that I mean he I I check with my farrier each time he comes out and I'm like I feel so bad because he's really not working <laughs> he'll look at me and just reassure me Hercules doesn't seem to mind um, and then, <laughs> then we had rabbits and we still have angora rabbits we had at one point added American chinchilla heritage breed rabbits but found that that was a little bit too much because the boys have you know, transitioned out of the house. So it's my husband and I now. So we have to be very intentional about what we make time for and prioritize because it has to be something. I, I refuse to raise anything that I can't care for adequately. So even when we were learning with the sheep, I was like, if for any reason, when COVID happened, it was hard to schedule a shearer. And I was like, that's unacceptable. I have to learn how to shear because I have to care for this animal. This animal did not elect to be here. I asked it to live here. And that is part of my responsibility. Now, am I an excellent shearer? No. But am I competent enough to, you know, provide for their these animals' needs? Then I would say yes. And mad respect and shout out to the people who do that. <laughs> care to work professionally. I talked to Stephanie Wilkes recently, and one of the things that she, you know, talked about getting into shearing in the first place was finding out that one of the limits on small flocks for fiber and for all kinds of production is making sure that there's somebody who can go and take care of farms where there's two sheep or farms where somebody used to shear and can't anymore. So being part of that network uh, and learning to do it yourself is quite impressive. Yeah. And I, I love that you mentioned Stephanie because she is actually one of our other coaches and she's been working with us over this past year. Uh, we had the good fortune of being selected to be part of what Georgia Organics is a nonprofit here in the state of Georgia. And we are part of their accelerator program because mm. as our kids moved on to, you know, you raise them to be independent and then all of a sudden they actually decide to be independent. And <laughs> <laughs> right. it comes a little bit as a shock. You're like, wait a minute, where are you going? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they all have either in college or moved out and they're doing well. But it really made us reevaluate at that time what empty nesting in this transition was going to look like. And we, my husband and I both said, we really want to continue doing this work. And there was a period where we we're wondering whether or not we would be able to continue farming and or even just, you know, homesteading. Uh, would we be able to maintain this lifestyle? And we quickly realized that it wasn't something that it wasn't an option to give it up. We would just have to get better at it. So we applied to be in the program and we were part of this current cohort. And that means we were able to select coaches like Stephanie, who were able to sit down and look across, you know, it's, it's definitely, it's been an interesting year, but she's given us so much wisdom and we are very grateful for her because without her counsel and some of the other coaches, we, I don't know that we would, I don't know that we can say that we're successful because we have proven results so far in this kind of new iteration of our farm, but it feels like, you know, we are on the cusp of moving in the direction we want to be in. And that is a success in and of itself. I really appreciate you sharing, you know, some of the the successes and also some of the challenges, because from the outside, sometimes it can look like, oh, you know, I bought a tumble down farm in foreclosure. And 15 years later, I had this 
great farm growing. And, and so hearing a little bit about how it was difficult and there were, you know, successes and also failures makes it seem like, okay, folks, you know, put on the brakes. You don't, you're not going to go out and just buy a plot of land and have some sheep right away. Well, and shout out to the people who are smart enough to go to, you know, ag school or get some training or be within a community. We kind of, I always tell people we were accidental farmers and we started backwards. We had a community well before we had a product, which every coach I've talked to goes, that's wonderful. Like that's half the battle. And I'm thinking to myself, but people have come here because they really, that, and I am very grateful for this. I don't know that I can really explain it, but they've come to be part of a community, to become, they, they share what they bring to the table and what ideas they have and experiences they have. But they don't necessarily come here to shop. It's not a, oh, I'm going to swing by high hog for eggs and lettuce. It, it has just been a different, it's, we're going to, you know, I'm going to come gather. I want to experience your farm. I want to tour your farm. I want to talk to you about what the pros and cons and the challenges were and what obstacles. How did you overcome this? And we are always happy to share. But that was the pivot that we had to make after the boys transition because you know at the time I wasn't and I I still my motivation isn't the profit line and it's so hard to say that when you're like a business owner because my coaches I'm sure would probably want (laughs) to clock me upside the head for saying that (laughs) but the reality is my focus was teaching my boys raising them in a space where I knew that they would learn about hard work and being disciplined, you feed your animals first before you feed yourself in the morning. And then you come in and then this is what our harvests look like. And, you know, just that, the qualitative things that don't make it onto your PL, right? So now it's like, well, being mindful of those outputs and assigning value so that people who are coming to be part of it do understand and recognize that there is work and that there's value and that our food system doesn't always work in a way that really gives a true appreciation for the costs that go into, especially to the farmer or the producer of what our food, what it really costs to produce our food. So yeah, those things have shifted and I'm trying my best to find strike the balance so that I can really still feel like gardening or handling the sheep or grooming a rabbit still feels cathartic and fun and isn't just driven by that, but being mindful not to be wasteful and to being more consistent. So I have an assistant now who has helped me devise a calendar and a schedule and a better routine. Um, My husband is definitely, he's like the rock. He's just the rhythm and the beat and I am the ideas and the we won't this be fun and oh we should try this so we complement each other but I'm I'm trying to slow my pace a little bit and he's trying to he's always trying to pivot to keep up with me so I can't even <laughs> say that that he's had to do much but yeah I'm trying to make it a little easier on him you know you mentioned you had a community before you had a product what is the product what would you say is the primary we've mostly been talking about kind of the homesteading and, and values element of it. But when you think of your farm as a business, what business are you in? Yeah, so that's really good. It's fibers and dyes and natural dyes. And how that is playing out is we have tried a few different 
ways of bundling or packaging things. But because it's so diversified, it was really hit or miss. It was very difficult to let customers know, like, I don't sell yarn. I sell roving. I sell naturally dyed wool cloud. I sell fiber blends. Um, So it's really being okay with not being able to serve every consumer, but just say, look, I really have great products for hand spinners and we bundle them in membership clubs and you can get this, you know, it's really revising and tidying up what we offer. And then knowing that we still have the farm fresh items, it's a farm basket. You know, you can sign up and you can, if you're local, mm-hmm. you can get a farm basket. Right. That we still offer that because we always have more than we necessarily need. And then any of the value added items like our jellies and jams and vinegars or anything like that. So I love the idea of bundling them, though, because it's an important element for a lot of people to not only buy something, but buy into something. And having a farm membership seems like it's letting people buy into, become part of High Hog Farm and have something to take away as opposed to just online shopping for some fiber. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not just I hope that it doesn't feel like just landing at our site from a Google search. I love the idea. And I think that's the feedback, too, through our social media that I'm talking to a community of people who choose to watch and follow. And a lot of it feels like a diary of the things that we do here. And I we have gotten better with what we do. So there's fewer mistakes than when we first started. But, you know, we first used Diary of a Farm Virgin as our hashtag, and we would just chronicle all the craziness that would would transpire uh, around the farm, especially with animals. My goodness, we had goats. So if you ever <laughs> interested, you can go do that, do that uh, hashtag search and see all the craziness those goats put us through. But um, now we're able to just really kind of hone in and say, this is the bundle and here's the colorway for this month. And here's some of the offerings and they track They are in line with our values and in our ethics and how we try to care for and steward our land. And it's also something where you can make something that's lasting. I think that's part of it. It's I love the culinary arts, but there's something about the fiber arts in terms of just like the agrarian arts as a whole that feels so much more like, oh, this is an heirloom. I can take this yarn and I can make this this textile and it's something that can be passed on and it can if it's made with care and with great quality it can outlive you so you know grandpa's cardigan is a little bit now i do like a good salad or a steak but it's just a little bit more impactful it's great to have both i mean just as it's good to have the summer where you have all that abundant produce and it's good to have the winter where you have things that you've put by So you mentioned that you decided to do this when you were 30 after thinking that it looked like a good idea after watching some HGTV. What did you and your your husband and your family do before this? Oh, that's a great question. So my my husband is a software and IT guy by profession, by training, and a photographer. He's currently a drone pilot and a photographer, and he's been doing photography for well over a decade. I 
did had two career paths before falling into farming and that well two primary one was as an intercultural communications trainer mm-hmm. uh, did that for gosh I want to say seven or eight years and then the other was did marketing and creative design marketing hmm. so it's it's kind of funny that the strategic or tactical side of the marketing thing. That is not my my strong suit. But if you want something to look pretty, <laughs> I am your I am your gal. So I did uh, graphic and web design for 13, 14 years. And Warren was great. And Warren, my husband, he would be able to d- make the back end functional and I would make it look good up front. And um, we did that for over a decade. Then I went back to school and studied um, social and cultural anthropology, did interdisciplinary studies with those two disciplines, and then thought I wanted to pursue academia. And I think because both my parents were preacher's kids and then educators, teachers. And I I hate, like, I literally am going to use the term, I was the black sheep of the family. I was trying (laughs) so hard to be, you know, that square peg in a round hole. But Mm -hmm. it just was like, you know, schooling, very intelligent, very capable, not really all that interested. And then was athletic and had a good athletic, you know, ran track. I was a hurdler for, gosh, until I'd had my youngest, actually. I kept trying to continue with what I thought would fit and then kept trying to force myself into these career paths that were not serving where I needed to be. And it's so funny because looking back, I use every single thing that I've, you right. know, accumulated with within the work that I do now. Like as a farmer, you my, my goodness, the number of hats you wear is mind boggling. I don't think people fully right. appreciate that. But when I finally burnt out <laughs> working with municipalities working with uh, higher education institutions and doing this intercultural training, it would be amazing how I could, I always describe it as I thought this, the farm became the praxis. Hmm. There was the theory and then there was the methodology. There was all the philosophy that went into it, but it felt like it was somehow removed from what actually happened in the real world. So I would stand in front of a group and you know, most of the time the group was there because it was a require. You know, is required to some extent to do these DEIA, mm-hmm. and I think for the most part, as far as I'm aware, nobody had an, any negative experiences. I always enjoyed the work. I was fascinated by what we were able to unpack. But the moment I mentioned after the class was over, the session was done, and I was finished facilitating, and I would mention something about our farm and our homestead that we were starting. Mm-hmm. everybody lit up. It was a different type of energy. It was, even if people had a negative food or farm story, it engaged people. Everybody felt that connection. And then it was able to start doing programs at the farm, cooking classes and canning classes and inviting people to come and teach. And this is how you start a chicken tractor, build a chicken tractor. <laughs> and so that was what we did for the first, gosh, I mean, eight years, seven, eight years of doing this work. And then the fiber thing kind of fell in. And now we have a fiber circle. Um, We have a group of us ladies who 
were selected by some miracle to participate in Gist Yarns. Um, oh, yeah. their artist residency. So yeah. we started with, there's a group of 12, but all of us are different farmers, growers, and work hard. So there's seven of us who have been able to dive in and we're doing a collective weaving project on this. Interesting. Gifted to us, uh, LeClaire for Jack Loom. Is that correct? For Harness Jack Loom, maybe? Thank you. Thank you. We are enjoying the process. SAFON is an, a member organization for Southeastern African American Farmers Organic Network. I hope I got that organization's name right, but they are amazing. And they had actually formed a fiber cluster and it took seven farmers, myself included, down to Oaxaca, Mexico, the end of November. And we were able to do a natural dye and weaving workshop. So when I got back, I felt just barely armed enough to be able to be like, I think I could warp this which was the hardest part of the weaving process uh, by far. I kind of say now, I'm like, I would ride my horse more and I would weave more if somebody would either tack my, put the tack in the saddle on or warp the loom. Like, like, I just want to do the thing, but my husband keeps telling me that's not how it works. So (laughs) now in terms of organizations, do I also remember that you were part of the Livestock Conservancy? Yes, I am currently a board member with the Livestock Conservancy and actually just extended the term a little bit last year. And so working with them on just really preserving, I just have such a heart for the various breeds and their their role in our ecosystem. And I understand that the complexities to have any really meaningful conversation about our food system in our agricultural industry, which is this mega giant thing. You have to approach that conversation respectfully. But there are multiple problems within that. And part of the industrialization of our food and the go big or go home method and removing the local sovereignty and being able to support the small farmer has really reduced and had a, a tragic impact on many of the breeds that folks have really borrowed from, you know, to create these frankenbirds and different (laughs) animals. I don't know. I don't have the responsibility of thousands of people in my immediate environment depending on me to feed them. Mm -hmm. But with with that understanding, I also feel like we have a responsibility to begin to correct some of these problems because I don't think that this is a sustainable model. We're losing too much with the way things are. And then if, if you're about to ask me, what do I propose as a solution? Please don't. No. I, just, I don't know what you do to fix it, but I know that it, it needs to change. Right. So. Well, it reminds me of something that I noticed about the programs that you do and, and the diversification of the sort of holistic elements of the farm is that self-sufficiency seems to be a really important theme being able to not necessarily have make everything yourself, but being able to to take care of your own basic needs seems to be an important theme. Yeah. And it's so interesting. I remember when I very first, when we first started, there was always this talk about self-sufficiency and that is something that's important, but I always felt like what was missing was the interdependence. 
it's like you can't just have the self-sufficiency and be, you know, I'm going to make my own sourdough starter and then I'm also going to make my own kombucha and I don't know how that's going to work in the same kitchen. And then <laughs> I'm also going to make my cheese and then I make it, you know, like at a certain point you're going to be, I mean, and let alone bringing into like the full scale of our actual physical needs, which include clothing and shelter, you know, which are also agricultural products. Like you just, you'll, I always say we'll be fat, but naked, like you're going to have to pick something. <laughs> and you, so it really does require a village. Like you just, you can specialize and you can have other things that you do, but you, we are not to be islands unto ourselves, but we are to be good stewards and resourceful and not wasteful and learn to not just treat things as like this disposable. Right. Uh, waste stream that we seem to be. It's hard and it is consumerism, you know, I'm very aware when I go on my little soapbox rants that I'm also part of this broader system. Like I'm also a part of consumer culture, mm -hmm. but I'm trying my best to at least build a few skills here and there and then share those skills with others so that we can move or begin to shift that paradigm. Because if things were to really come to any sudden stop, what are we going to replace, you know, are we going to be prepared to replace that with something that's going to keep us warm and pretty? <laughs> and pretty, absolutely. So speaking of keeping warm, it seems like there is sort of a nexus at the farm where people can come and engage with what you're doing. But if folks from away, like we're speaking and I'm, you're in Georgia and I'm in Colorado, how could I be part of what you're doing? Oh, that's so good. So yay, great question. One of the things that we will be setting up, we're offering this beginning of 2024, is a virtual grow along oh. uh, for indigo. And we're going to start with the indigo first. Um, we may add other dye crops going down the road, but that way the community can be beyond just our front door. Because really most of our online community is spread out. It's just incredible how many people have really been wonderful to support us and follow us and are not necessarily in the metro Atlanta area. So the grow along and it will include, you know, access to instructional content that I, I share and then also connecting you with other people in the community and to see their results. And the focus will be on Persicaria. I feel so guilty every time I say that because Sofruticosa is that thing that's here in Georgia is regional and historic. But the Persicaria does really well as a house plant mm. as well as being planted outside. Really? So it's just, yeah, you can plant. See, you need a you need a pot near your door in a nice sunny spot and with some Persicaria. And then you can just snip and use make as much indigo as you want. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of magical. So that'll be one of the ways that I think will help engage people who want to be connected. And then we also have, like I mentioned before, the membership clubs for the different dye blends. And people will be able to share what they make by tagging the product with the club, sharing the results of what they make from the different fiber blends and dyes that we we sell. So, so would I find more about this on your website? So yes, brand new website is up for people to go and shop and sign up. There's also, I wanted to mention that this year we will not be doing an internship or having an 
a woofer stay with us like we have in the past years, but we are offering a three-week artist residency um, three times this year. So Mm -hmm. that information will also be on the website if you're interested in coming and spending three weeks on the farm and diving into your own personal craft. And I know I'm, I might have to pry Biggie's fiber out of your out of your hands, but if I wanted to get my hands on some of your Gulf Coast native. And are you part of the Shave Him to Save Him program as well? I am. Yes, we are. That's an awesome program. We provide not raw pleases, but roving. So you can get roving and a sticker for the program from us on our website. Well, Keisha, I think I've only discovered your farm online in the past few years. And it's been astonishing to see how much it has developed since then. And I just can't wait to see what you're up to next. Thank you. And it's really wonderful to be invited to just have this conversation and share with you. And just it's very inspiring. And I want to encourage everybody else, all the fiber artists and the fiber and dye growers to keep doing what you're doing, because it really it really we are the people who are bringing like color to the world. So I love that. I have loved our conversation and I especially love that. So Thank you so much, Keisha. Thank you. Thanks to our sponsors for supporting the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.